Thank you for listening to this message from Sovereign Grace Community Church in Denver, Colorado. We pray that you are encouraged and edified by it. You can find more information about Sovereign Grace Community Church by visiting our website at www.sgccdenver.org. If you would like to make a donation to our small ministry, you can do so using the Donate button on our website or on the SGCC Denver Sermon Audio page. Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Father, I do ask that as we continue our worship that you will meet us in our weakness, that you will free us from distractions, from things that perhaps are weighing us down, things that would capture our attention and our affections, things that would carry us away from um, a focused heart and mind. And I pray that you would give each one of us ears to hear and eyes to see, and that you will be pleased by your Spirit to give us a fresh sight of Jesus our Lord, that we would see your face in his face, and that we would see his face with a a fresh and a glorious insight, that we would go from this place today invigorated, encouraged, with renewed zeal, new enthusiasm for the glorious privilege that is ours in him. So, Father, help each one today cause Christ to be revealed for his glory's sake. Amen. Well, this series in the Psalms that we've been in, I I titled it The Songs of Sonship because these Psalms were written as songs to be uh, kind of a central aspect of Israel's worship. And behind each one of these is the premise of Israel's covenant sonship. Regardless of the topic, regardless of the emotional flavor of a particular psalm, uh, its orientation, behind all of that was Israel's rehearsing of its sonship. Everything that they were, everything that they did, certainly all of their life with God, their, their relationship with him in worship was grounded in the fact that by his mercy, by his covenant election, they were children of God. And so I've broken this series down under three kind of broadheads, psalms that celebrate sonship in the sense of unfolding really what it was, the glories attached to it what it meant for Israel to have that status of being collectively son of God, but individually covenant children of Yahweh, what it meant for them, what it entailed, what it required of them. The second part of it then was what I call challenges to sonship. What were the things that Israel faced? The challenges to its faithfulness, the challenges to its fulfilling of its covenant election of its, its calling, its vocation on behalf of the world. And we saw that those are largely psalms of lament, in which the psalmist was either individually or, or collectively on behalf of the nation, 
lamenting the failure of Israel to be Israel, the failure of Israel in its sonship. Well, the last section then that I want to deal with today and and next time uh, I'm calling the consummation of sonship. And the premise behind this is that Israel's sonship was by virtue of God's purpose, God's election, God's intentionality, his design. And therefore, even though Israel was incapable, and as the centuries went on, it became more evident that the nation was incapable of fulfilling its covenant identity and calling. Nonetheless, God continued to insist that his purposes would stand. That's why I wanted to read from Isaiah 59 today, because that's such an intensive indictment of the fundamental problem and how insuperable it was. Even those who at some level had hoped to escape from the corruption and the evil of Israel's life with God, they just became a prey that that were consumed. There was no escape. There was no remedy. There was no man. Israel's failure and its inability to fulfill its election became more and more obvious as the centuries went on. And that left Israel with a dilemma. God had made a covenant with Abraham by which he said, in you and more specifically in your offspring, through your offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. My intent for this alienated, estranged creation with alienated human beings at the center of it, my intent for that, Abraham, is bound up in you and in your offspring. Well, as the centuries went on and it became evident that not only had Israel failed to fulfill that vocation, that calling, but they were incapable of fulfilling it. And part of what drives the story of the Old Testament, the salvation history along, is how is this going to be resolved? Will God's intent for the world fail? If Israel cannot be Israel, then God's purposes will fail. Or he will have to come up with a new plan. But he bound himself to Abraham and he bound himself covenantally to that purpose such that he was not going to set it aside and come up with a different plan. Well, that only left one alternative. Somehow God would have to cause the people of Abraham to be the people of Abraham indeed. He would have to somehow cause Israel to be Israel. And by the time you get to the prophet Isaiah, and and certainly in the servant songs and in, in the way in which Isaiah builds this case, the way in which God was going to do that is that he was going to raise up from within Israel an Israelite who would be what Israel was called to be, son, servant, witness, disciple. And you see this in Isaiah 49. God says of this one, you are my servant, Israel. And in you, I will recover 
the remnant of Israel and Judah, but it's not enough that you should be my servant on behalf of Israel. I make you a covenant of the peoples that my salvation will go to the ends of the earth. So this one actually ends up embodying the covenant. The relationship between God and Israel. He is Israel with respect to God and he is God with respect to Israel. He embodies in himself all of that Abrahamic purpose and identity and calling. And that's the way the prophets build the case for what is to come. But my point in saying all of that is to say that if Israel's songs of sonship lamented and, and woefully so the failure of the nation, always behind that and coming through more or less directly and intensely was the confident hope that somehow Yahweh would yet prevail. There was never such a thing in the, in the Psalms or in Israel's uh, scriptures uh, uh, more broadly that somehow this failure was the end of the story. But nor was it that somehow Israel would turn things around and get this right. No, it was that Yahweh would rise up. But he wouldn't rise up abstractly at a distance and wave a magic wand. He would take on the nation's failure in himself. He would embody Israel in himself in this servant who was to come. And in him, God would cause Israel to become Israel. In an Israelite, indeed. And so this idea of the consummation of sonship in the Psalms speaks to that idea. That somehow this covenant election that God had given to Abraham and the Abrahamic people, that Israel was God's beloved son, his monogenes, his only begotten. That somehow that covenanted truth would become actualized. Israel would become son indeed. And that's the idea of the consummating of sonship. And I want to look at that today in terms of actually four psalms that are all right together. This idea is really kind of woven in. It's always like the meta narrative or the backstory in all of the psalms, as it's in all of Israel's scripture, certainly in the psalms. But, but these are four uh, right side by side. And I don't know if the compiler who put together this canonical order did it for this reason or not, but these psalms fit very well together in getting at uh, the first aspect of this consummation of sonship that I want to address today, which is that coming through this thing called God's judgment. The, co the consummating of sonship through God's judgment. So the Psalms I want us to consider today are Psalms 96, 97, 98, and 99. All of which are anonymous. We don't know who wrote, wrote them. Could have been the same psalmist. It could have been more than one psalmist. Certainly Psalms 96 and 98 are so close that they're, uh, in my mind, it would be not inconceivable that they were penned by the same writer. <clears throat> But they function together with this eschatological thrust, if you will, that I've been talking about. The intent of God for the world that is bound up in Israel. And that he will be faithful to accomplish that. All of those sorts of core themes surrounding that are, are woven together in these four psalms together. 
and they have a kind of alternating arrangement. What you see is that the opening line of 96 is sing to the Lord a new song. And the opening line of 98 is sing to the Lord a new song. And the opening line of 97 is Yahweh reigns. And the opening line of 99 is Yahweh reigns. And those themes, you know, even as those introductory uh, proclamations that kind of set the tone for each of these psalms, they fit very tightly together. 97 and 99, in, in a very kind of explicit way, highlight the theme of God's kingship and his reign. Remember, Israel was a kingdom, a theocratic kingdom. Yahweh was king in Israel. And the indictment during the period of Judges was there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And it's kind of a a funny play on, on an idea because there was no human king in Israel. But the point is Yahweh wasn't even king in Israel at that time. Everybody was his own king. But from the very beginning, Yahweh was Israel's king. And eventually that kingship was played out through human kings who sat on his throne and ruled in his name, in his authority. But Yahweh was the king in Zion. And this idea of kingship and God's reign centered in Israel, centered in Zion itself, that's at the very forefront of Psalms 97 and 99. But it's also woven into Psalms 96 and 98 as we'll see as we go through these. And that idea of God's kingship and his intent in his kingship is kind of the context for understanding uh, these kind of common refrains that appear in Psalm 97 and, or um, Psalm 96 and 98. So that may not all be very clear at this point in time, but that's the way I'm trying to connect these four psalms together. So beginning with the, uh, the, the second and the fourth, Psalm, um, or, yeah, 97 and 99, as I said, their centerpiece is this extolling of God's sovereignty and the call of, God, the, call of the psalmist to men to respond to him accordingly. The Lord reigns. And interestingly, as a starting point, this expression or this proclamation, the Lord reigns. If you have a Bible that distinguishes that covenant name of God, it's all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. Yahweh reigns. So the psalmist starts out by identifying this God who is king with his covenant name. And so we say, okay, yeah, well, that's all fine and good. This was Old Testament literature, probably written during the exile time. But, okay, they they acknowledge that God was king in Israel. So what? Well, as you read through these Psalms, you see that they're ultimately looking to this expansion of God's kingship to where he becomes king of all the earth. So Israel's covenant God reigns, but then as the psalmist begins to unfold this and call for this praise and this worship and this proper orientation towards this God who is king, it goes out to all the earth. Psalm 97, the Lord reigns, Yahweh reigns, let the earth rejoice 
Let the many islands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Right, righteousness, this means rightness, doing what is right. And justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about. His lightnings lit up the world. The earth saw and trembled. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of Yahweh. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness and all the peoples have beheld his glory. Let all, therefore, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, idols, who boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all you gods. Even the gods that are worshipped are to worship him. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah have rejoiced because of your judgments, O Yahweh, for you are Yahweh most high over all the earth. Exalted far above all gods, and so hate evil all you who love Yahweh, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown like the seed, like seed for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Be glad in Yahweh, you righteous ones, and give thanks to his holy name. And then Psalm 99. Yahweh reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. Yahweh is great in Zion, but he's exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. This is the refrain that splits this psalm into three pieces. And the strength of the king loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt Yahweh, who is our God, and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also among those who called on his name. They called on Yahweh, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies, the statute that he gave them. Yahweh, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of evil deeds. Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his holy hill. Holy is Yahweh our God. You see, this theme is, is, is the kingship, the supreme absolute kingship of God, but a kingship that's centered in Zion, centered in Israel, but extends over all the earth. Over all the earth. And this is an important thing because, you know, often people will say, well, wait a minute, God is God. He's already king over all things. He's already sovereign. Are you making God sovereign? He's already sovereign. But the psalmist is talking about something that's very important. Yes, in a certain sense, God is the Lord of all his creation and has been forever. But his intent was to become king Lord and Father covenantally over the whole creation, over the whole world in the way that he had been for Israel. That's what's being recognized here. It's not saying, is God becoming more sovereign than he was before? It sounds kind of man-centered to reduce the, the glory of God. Well, that's missing the whole point. Again, the idea is that God had ordained that he would become king over all the earth in a way that he had been king in Israel. 
And even his kingship with respect to Israel looked to that outcome. The whole calling and election of Abraham and the Abrahamic people, the establishing of his theocratic kingdom and reign in Israel was that ultimately he would become king over the whole earth and ultimately flood the whole creation with his presence and his wisdom and his goodness in a way that was not presently true. And that's what the psalmist is talking about. Not the internal character of God, but his design to, in terms of his intent relationally with the world. That idea of this eschatological or consummating of his kingship is really the lens through which then we read Psalms 96 and 98. These psalms are very closely parallel, and they consist of the same three parts. They begin with a call to the inhabited earth to sing a new song. There's a call at the beginning of these two psalms to the inhabited earth to sing a new song to Yahweh as the sovereign creator and deliverer. Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to him all the earth, sing to him, bless his name, sing to Yahweh, proclaim good tidings of his deliverance from day to day. Psalm 98, sing to Yahweh a new song for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. Yahweh has made known his deliverance, revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness, his covenant fidelity, his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the deliverance of our God. And then the second part of each of these two psalms is a more specific call to all people, all people, to proclaim the Lord's praises as this one who is the great king over all creation, the one who has done this marvelous work. Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name, bring an offering, come into his courts, worship Yahweh in holy attire, tremble before him all the earth. And then Psalm 98, shout joyfully to Yahweh, all the earth, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises, sing praises to him with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with the trumpets, the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before the king, Yahweh, the king. And then the last section of these two Psalms is a call to all creation to rejoice and to celebrate because this great king is coming to judge the world. Psalm 96. Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar in all it contains. This is verse 11 through 13. Let the field exult in all that is in it, then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And then Psalm 98, verse 7. 
Let the sea roar and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands and the mountains sing together for joy before Yahweh, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So these psalms are very tightly parallel, but again, deal with that same central theme of the reign of God. The reign of God. So in terms of the first section, then both begin with this same call, sing to the Lord a new song, a new song. Well, new in what sense? In what sense is this song new? The newness actually consists in the fact that it's proclaiming a new work, a new song because it proclaims a new work. What new work? The work that God has been promising that he's going to do. It's described in these psalms as a mighty work of deliverance and everlasting dominion that pertains to all nations and peoples. A new song that sings that truth of a new work involving deliverance and dominion. That's this idea of salvation. Yahweh is going to arise in his sovereign might as the creator, upholder of all things, to deliver and to establish his kingship over all the earth. Dalich says the new song assumes a new form of things, a new state of things, a beginning of the recognition of Yahweh throughout the whole world of nations and of his ascension to the lordship over all the earth. Those are the two main pieces of this new song. And both Psalms emphasize that same perspective, but Psalm 98 elaborates on it in two important ways that Psalm 96 doesn't. The first thing that Psalm 98 does is it states that that work of God, that intent and that, that, that display of God has been revealed to all people. It's been revealed to all people. This salvation, this deliverance has been made known to all people. He says, even to the very ends of the earth. And this very much echoes that Isianic idea that when Yahweh arises and does this work, it will be known throughout the earth. It will be seen throughout the earth. And the second thing that builds on that and is also very significant where Psalm 98 fleshes out this new song and what is this new work, Psalm 98 shows that that work of triumph, of liberation, of kingship is bound up in God's covenant faithfulness to the house of Israel. Look again at verse 3. Well, let's pick it up at verse 2, Psalm 98. Yahweh has made known his deliverance. He's revealed his rightness, his consistency, his integrity in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness. That's covenant language, chesed his fidelity, his commitment of love to this covenant relationship. He's remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. 
So what is he saying? This new song that proclaims this new work of God is a deliverance that is universally displayed and is to be universally proclaimed, but it's actually God's demonstrated faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And again, that's why I wanted to read from Luke 1, not just because it's the Christmas season, but both Mary in her Magnificat and also Zacharias emphasize that what is happening in the birth of John, and as that is now, the, in a sense, saying the messianic time has come. If the forerunners here, he announces Yahweh's coming. He announces the return of Yahweh to Zion. He's heralding the messianic person and age. And both of those speakers in Luke tie it very tightly to God's faithfulness to his covenant to Abraham. He's remembered his covenant. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the psalmist is getting at that as well. This deliverance, universally pertinent, universally proclaimed, universally manifested, is the, is the faithfulness of God to his covenant oath with the patriarchs and with the people of Israel. So that's the first section. The second section of these two psalms calls for the universal human response appropriate to that. It calls for all men to respond appropriately to that delivering work of God. All the earth and its inhabitants are to ascribe to Yahweh the glory and the power that are his alone. Psalm 96, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to him glory and strength, ascribe to Yahweh the glory of his name. Psalm 98, shout joyfully to Yahweh all the earth, break forth and sing for joy and sing praises, sing praises to him with the lyre, with the lyre the sound of melody, with trumpets the sound of the horn, shout joyfully before Yahweh the king. All the inhabitants of the earth are to ascribe to him the glory and the strength, the fidelity, the integrity of his name. He has done marvelously. Praise him for who he is. And they sing praises for his triumph, secondly. He's gained the victory. He's taken his throne. He's established the world under his reign so that it will not be moved forever. It will not be moved forever. So they're to acknowledge God for who he is and who he is is manifested in what he has done. They praise him for what he has done. And then the closing section of these two psalms, as I said, uh, is this very tight echo of of, uh, this parallel between the two of them, which is a call to the the non-human creation, not to the exclusion of humans, but an an involving of the non-human creation in joy and praise and celebration. That's the way Psalm 96 ends. That's the way Psalm 98 ends. But specifically and importantly, they are to celebrate and rejoice the earth. The non-human creation is to celebrate and rejoice because Yahweh is coming to judge it. Verse 
And this is where I want to put my attention for the rest of our time, because on the face of it, it would seem like this is kind of a weird thing. God's coming to judge the the world. He's coming like a roaring fire to judge the earth, but the earth is told to rejoice and to celebrate. The very entity that is being judged is being told to celebrate. And I think particularly in our contemporary uh, Christian environment, it's troubling because we think of this idea of judgment in terms of, you know, like an end of the age cataclysm. What's going to happen when God judges the world is he's going to burn everything up and destroy everything. Well, why would the, why would the earth be celebrating and rejoicing its own annihilation? But that's our common way of viewing things. Can't wait till Jesus comes back and burns everything up and destroys all of this, right? And fortunately, we have the rapture, so we get out of here. We get to go up in heaven and watch all this conflagration, you know, on the earth. But we get to escape from it. But that's not at all what the psalmist is talking about. He's not talking about some end times nuclear war on the planet or whatever it happens to be. That's not the point that he's getting at. That's the way that we tend to think about it. And that's the eyes through which we read the Psalms. But once again, we see how important it is to read these Psalms through an Israelite eye. Based on their understanding Contemporary eschatology notions of, you know, tribulation and judgment and antichrist and all of that. We can't read that stuff into these sorts of passages. We have to understand them in terms of a truly biblical eschatology, not contemporary notions of eschatology. The writer is referring to the day when Yahweh would arise. That's why I laid the foundation the way I did of this whole thing of kingship centered in Israel, intent for the world to extend God's kingdom and his reign. The writer is talking about the day when God will come and he will judge the world in the sense of setting all things right. What we read about in Isaiah, God says, I will arise. I'll put on the breastplate of righteousness. I'll put on the helmet of salvation. I look around and I see there's no man who can solve this. I will come and I will do it. I will do it. And therefore, Zion will be restored and she will be adorned. Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. The glory of the Lord is risen upon you. When Yahweh arises as the great king and Lord, he will liberate, he will deliver, he will renew the world, he will restore his covenant kingdom, he will restore his own status as king over Israel, but in and through Israel over the whole earth. That's the Old Testament's eschatological vision. That's the day of Yahweh. Yahweh. 
that's what, how the, the Jews expected God to arise and do this judgment of the earth. He's pointing, the psalmist is ultimately pointing to, though they don't mention it directly, they're pointing to the messianic day. The day when Yahweh would do this great work in a redeemer. Think again of Isaiah 59. God says, I will come. I will put all things right. But a redeemer will come to Zion who carries the name Lord. And God says of him, my covenant with you will not depart from your mouth or the mouth of your offspring. A redeemer who embodies Yahweh's return to Zion. You've heard me say many times before, you know, as Christians, we want to try to find a proof text in the New Testament that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is somehow God. The overarching and blaring in our ear proof that the scripture gives is that it understands that Jesus embodies the God who promised to return and put all things right. You can't find a verse that say, I am God. But that's not how it works. God promised that he would come and he would arise the day of his visitation. And what does Jesus say as he comes to the end and he pronounces the condemnation on Jerusalem and the temple? You did not know the day of your visitation. This is the day that Yahweh had told you when he would come. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's why the creation is summoned to rejoice and sing the creator's praises. It's to rejoice because God has not forgotten his oath to Abraham. He has not forgotten his promise to purge and to renew and to restore. And he is utterly committed to fulfilling it. He will be faithful to the house of Israel. He will arise and judge the world, which is to banish its alienation, banish the enmity, reconcile all things to himself. The whole notion of of some cosmic conflagration in the whole time-space universe being burned up and annihilated is not really a biblical idea as much as a lot of people believe that. The fires of purging, not the fires of annihilation. This is God's very good creation. And he's jealous for it. The psalmist called for the creation's praise in view of a day that was yet to come. Here's my closing point. We inhabit that day. We inhabit that day. And you say, well, wait a minute. I don't see all things put right. I don't see this conquest. I don't see this triumph. I don't see God's kingship over all the earth? Well, scripturally, it's the case, whether we see it or not. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
enthroned at the right hand of power, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that's named in this age and the age to come. And Paul says we are raised up and seated in that realm in him. When Paul says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, that's what he's talking about. We have the privilege, we can look back and read these Psalms and see the way in which God has done this in Jesus the Messiah. And we inhabit this day. We inhabit this day. And yet, we too also have to sing this new song in hope of the future. We too have to sing a new song, this new song, in hope for the future. As Paul says in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, we are already sharers in this new creation. Already we've been raised up in Christ. Already we are seated in that heavenly realm in him. And yet it doesn't presently appear what we shall be. And even the creation itself is groaning and waiting for the day of its own renewal. When death is swallowed up in life, when mortality, the last enemy to be conquered, Paul says Christ must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. There's one enemy that remains, death, mortality. Now he has conquered it. The resurrection is the conquest of death. We just don't experience it yet in our own personal experience. But we have experienced the triumph over death of the inner man, and that is the promise, the earnest of the spirit of the resurrection of the body to come. So we live in the context of this day already fulfilled, but in an already but not yet sort of way. We wait for the day when everything is summed up in the Messiah, when death is banished, when the creation is fully renewed, when God will be all in all. So here's my closing exhortation. If we are to really be Christian people, if we are to really proclaim the gospel, we have to be those who proclaim, who understand and who proclaim what the psalmist was talking about and looking to. We have to be the proclaimers of the kingship of God that is new creation. We often hear Christians, you know, I I used to have a good friend who wore a, uh, a little sew-on patch on his, his jacket that said, Jesus is Lord. And that's the very marrow of the gospel. But too often that's understood as he's in charge, you better do what he says or you're going to go to hell. But when the apostles proclaimed the good news that Jesus is Lord, they were proclaiming what the psalmist is talking about. God has risen up. He has taken his authority and begun to rule as Lord of all the earth. But according to a new principle of kingdom, a new principle of dominion, a new principle of lordship. Pilate said, are you a king? You don't look like a king to me. Well, my kingdom is of a different sort. It doesn't look like anything you know in this world. It's a kingdom in which the least is the greatest. And the servant is the master. It's a different sort of kingdom. Yes, Jesus is Lord. And it meant that Caesar is not. And that's what got these guys thrown into prison. 
But they weren't saying Jesus is Lord like Caesar is Lord. He's a rival claimant to the throne, you know, the, the imperial throne in Rome. It's a totally different kind of kingship. We've got to be the proclaimers of that sort of kingship, of new creation. That's the way in which we have to speak truth to power. When we say Jesus is Lord, we're speaking truth to power. And, but it means we're proclaiming in word and, more importantly, in manner of life, God's way of doing power. When we think speaking truth to power means fighting political battles or forming a new Christian pack or, you know, getting some piece of legislation pushed through because that's going to fix everything. We're, we're doing power and, and fighting a fight that is the way the world fights. We speak truth to power by embodying in ourselves and living in a manner of life that testifies to power as Jesus did power as Jesus did authority and dominion. I'm washing your feet. Oh, you're the Messiah, you're the king, you can't wash my feet. Well, unless you embrace me in this way, you have no share in me. The lords of the Gentiles lord it over you, but it's not that way in my kingdom. Even as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As the Father sent me in that way, I'm sending you in that way. Doing power in a whole different way. Living out the truth of God's kingdom and Messiah's reign over all things in the power of his spirit. You look at the way the early church conducted itself. And so also, as the psalmist told us, we must hate and refuse all that contradicts our king. And his new creational kingdom, not kingdom as it's known in the world, not power as it's known in the world, not dominion as it's known in the world, his kingdom of the new creation. We have to oppose all that opposes his love, his truth, his beauty, his justice. Not our notions of those things the truth of those things as they are in him. And here's my closing statement. If you go back again and study the early church, they turned the world upside down. Not by working hard to win souls. They turned the world upside down by purposefully, faithfully, openly living out this new and true way of being human that exists in Jesus. You read records of the early church and people didn't know what to make of these people. They manifest a way of living that was unknown in the ancient world. Humility, patience, self-giving, those were weakness in the ancient world. The Romans despised that. The Greco-Roman world despised it. Submissiveness, humility, and they lived in that way. And the early testimony of those people was, we don't get it, what what it is with these people, but the way that they are, and the way that they are with one another, the way that they live, the way that they think, They're not beating down doors. They're not trying to convert people to a religion. They're living out the life of God in Christ. They're living out the reality of new creation. 
That's what it is to bear the fragrance of Christ in every place. It's only in that way, saints, that we proclaim Jesus as Lord. We're not proclaiming Jesus as Lord when we're just telling people he's in charge, you better do what he says. We have to get things right in people's heads and get them right first in our own heads. We proclaim him as Lord in that sort of a way, and then we're proclaiming the gospel of his triumph and his kingdom as it is now the reality in which we live and also in view of his appearing. We have to do life, not the, the, not the details of life as much as the, the way of thinking about life, the way of understanding life, the way of being human beings. We have to do it in a new way for the world to understand that Christ came and the meaning of his coming. Then we're fulfilling the obligation to sing a new song. All the earth, sing a new song. Let's pray. Father, these things are so simple and yet they're profoundly difficult because they they grate up against our natural sensibilities, everything that we know about life, everything that we know about human existence, everything that we know about human community, everything that we know about work and play and relationships. It's a profound paradigm shift to do life in an entirely different way, to bear the fragrance of Christ in every place, to see the great paradox of being sorrowful and yet always rejoicing, of being powerless and yet being powerful, of in one sense having nothing, and in another sense, having all things. In a sense of appearing to be poor and irrelevant and insignificant, and yet making many rich. Father, I pray that you will work this out in our minds and hearts, that we will be a people who chew on these things, who labor in them, And I pray that it wouldn't just be us, but that you would be pleased to do this work in your church throughout the world. It's very shocking and in in some ways very humiliating to think that, relatively speaking, a handful of people turned the ancient world upside down in a generation. Where is our testimony Where is the power of the gospel in our day? Where is the new song in our mouths, in our hearts, in our lives? Help us in these things, Father. We pray and we ask all of these things in the name of Christ our Lord.